This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep. Bam going back. Looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. Goal for Yelich. Cody Bellinger hits one out. Pete Alonso, he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. Good afternoon, everybody. It is A's Cast Live from the ballpark in Oakland, the Coliseum. It's an absolute beautiful afternoon. The athletics are taking batting practice as we speak. On the show today, Martin Gallegos from MLB.com at 415. Our A's historian, David Feldman, will be here for another Top 10 edition. And Ryan Roland Smith, former big league pitcher, now TV broadcaster for the Seattle Mariners. And we're not going to get into a lot of Seattle because nobody cares. We're going to get into a lot of pitching and what's going on with pitching in today's baseball. Because I'm still trying to figure out, and I'm asking as many people as possible, why the number 100? When did we settle on 100 being the boogeyman? Like all of a sudden a pitcher gets to 100, oh my God, you got to get him out. Well, you might have an answer right here as I'm looking at my notes going into tonight. As you look at the OPS of hitters against Cole Irvin first time through the through through the lineup second time and third time and they're actually pretty disturbing so first time through the lineup against Cole Irvin the OPS for the opponent is 588 second time it jumps to 657 third time it jumps to 857 so first time through the lineup 588 all the way to the third time 857 you want to talk about a dramatic increase and that's what scott emerson said to me and he might have the best example when i asked why 100 it's not really the pitch count it's how pitchers do third time through a lineup so you you start to wonder do pitchers really need at some point to understand that you're not going to throw the kitchen sink at a lineup first time through. This is where you establish the strike zone. You throw a lot of fastballs, maybe a secondary pitch that you want to use as a strikeout pitch, but you don't show them everything because that's what you're going to have to do in the second and third time around. But I got to tell you, these pitchers going five innings, it's just not good for the pitching staff. But then again, these front offices, Cody, have these numbers saying, well, hey, he's he's great. He's great in the, you know, first time through, second time through, but third time through, they're owning it. And maybe that's why we're seeing this number, you know, anywhere between like 80, you know, because we see guys getting taken out with 84 pitches. But it's not necessarily about the pitch count. It's where they are going through the lineup, which time. Is it the second time, the third time? You know, John, 
Uh, Joe Madden had seen enough with Dylan Bundy on Sunday and pulled him really early and allowed them to win the game. Yeah, and I mean, he's having a down year, and we've talked about that. It, they were expecting him to be Nolan Ryan, and, uh, well, he's nowhere close to that. But uh, I think the poster child for this whole, de- this whole debate is probably Blake Snell. I mean, Blake Snell is Mr. Five and Dive, and, you know, I've had conversations with my friends that, are, you know, they know baseball very well, and they go, the Rays ruined him. I mean, the Rays ruined him. Prior to, prior to him, you know, the year he won the Cy Young, he was pitching deep in the games. And, you know, now he can't go five innings. He went three and two-thirds after he gave up five runs. So anytime I, I, I track to see what Blake Snell does, he never goes more than five innings, and you see all what happened in the World Series. They didn't want him to go through the lineup again. And they had the big boppers coming up for the Dodgers, and they pulled him out. And I, I understand it, and I, but the, the 100 pitches, if the guy's rolling and, 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 and nobody has anything going, that's where you have to throw that philosophy out, and that's when you let the managers manage what they're, wait for it, their gut. Because, uh, oh, you can't do that. Don't say that. We might be removed off the show if you start yeah. talking about managing from your gut. Because we know that's not a lot, you know, that's not really in the game anymore. And that's, uh, I know people are going to disagree with this, but that's what Tony LaRusso does. He manages with his gut. Oh, and look where that's gotten him. Uh, hey, well, well, I think the White Sox, well, I think they won last night. So the, they're, they're getting back on the winning track. But um, yeah, the, this whole uh, idea of 100 pitches, it, it, it's just, we got to figure out to get to the bottom of this. Uh, I will say tonight, I don't think uh, Logan Gilbert, the Mariners' top pitching prospect, I don't think he's going to get to 100 pitches. You mean the guy who's 0-2 with a 9.45 ERA? That's not, that's not, that's not, that's not good. 9.45 ERA? By the way, you know who's getting love in the MLB notes today? Finally, it's Mark Canna. Mark Canna is 14 for 43. That's a 326 average. Five home runs, 10 runs scored in his last 12 games. Let me do that again for you. Last 12 games, Mark Canna's hitting 326, five dingers, and 10 runs scored. And has an extra base hit in four straight games. Of course, going deep last night. Uh, shocker, a solo home run, but it was a home run. <laughs> so he walked twice and hit a home run. I mean, how do you not look at what Mark Canna's doing this year and not understand that this guy's playing at, like, a really, really high level? I mean, why do you like him? Because he does what? He gets on base. He gets on base, Moneyball. But he, d- he does more than that, though. You know, I mean, he hits... He, he runs the bases well. He's got six stolen bases. He plays defense. He can play any position in the outfield. Now, you know, we haven't seen him at first base in a long time. Uh, obviously, can DH. But just what a special player. And I think you'd have to be like a really hardcore baseball fan, if not a fantasy baseball player, to really know Mark Can around the country. Because, I mean, you know, these guys are not going to get a whole whole lot of love. But if you follow the game, Mark Canna this season as a leadoff hitter is truly one of the great stories we got in the game. Yeah, he's now the third A's player to have ten home runs. He joins Ramon Laureano, who has seven solo home runs out of the ten. As we talk about the A's, who have 45 solo home runs, which leads Major League Baseball. The Braves, who have more home runs than anybody, are second on the list at 42 so the Braves, we have more solo, solo home, run home runs than, than anybody. anybody in baseball. Yeah, 
I got asked that question on Twitter last night. I, I love when people I get asked those what questions. Is, what is Twitter? Uh, yeah, it's true. You don't know what that is. You're 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 banned from Twitter. So, <laughs> Canada's the third A to have ten home runs with Olson and Laureano. The A's are now th- one, uh, one of three teams with three players with ten or more homers, joining the Reds and the Red Sox. So, Canada's having a great year batting leadoff. I mean. When we heard this idea in spring training that he was, you know, Bob Melvin asked him about batting leadoff, we both loved the idea. I, when I first heard it, I'm like, this is something we can do a whole show on. But this guy, first of all, batting leadoff, because he plays everywhere, you ask him to play. Two, he gets on base. That's what you want from your leadoff guy. The traditional leadoff guy is different. The traditional leadoff guy before yesteryear, going back, is a guy that got on base and stole bases. Well, not even got on base. It's a guy that got, had speed and stole bases. Now it's a guy that gets on base. He doesn't steal bases. Just a guy that gets on base. I don't, runs. I, I don't pay you to get thrown out at second base. Yeah, I paid you to get on first, not get thrown out at second. If you had to pick right now and you said, okay, I'm going to give you one all-star. Now, we got a long way to go. I get yeah. that. But you got to pick one guy to be your all-star. Who would it be? We'll ask Martin Gallegos this because this is a tough question. I'm really putting your feet to the fire. If I had to pick one guy, it's going to be tough because it's probably going to be a reliever. What? No, no, no. Position player. Oh, well, because like, if you're going to play the numbers and all that, because you know, every team has to have a guy, I would probably lean towards – I'd go Ramon Laureano. I know it's tough because we, because we were just talking about Mark Canna, but I think what Ramon does defensively, the 10 home runs, the 8 steals, although he hasn't stolen a base in a month and a half. You've shortchanged him on home runs. He has 11. Oh, sorry. Okay, so but they're so, yeah. Okay, so so they're both hitting two sixty. One, Canna's uh, got ten home runs. Ramon has eleven. Ramon has twenty one RBIs. Mark Canna has fifteen. But we need to go to runs scored. Oh, then I then I okay, I stand corrected because I didn't update my sheet. Ramon Laureano has eight solo home runs now out of the eleven. So I said seventy is eight because I've already had a solo home run against the Angels. In the ninth inning. So, yeah, he's eight solo home runs. That was 11. Okay. Yeah, Cano, when I last looked a couple of days ago, was third in the league in runs scored. I mean, what's the name of the game? Uh, scoring runs. So, I, you know, as much as I, I love Ramon Laureano, so Cano, as of right now, has scored 38 runs. Ramon Laureano scored 28. Yeah, I'm going to look to see where Cano ranks among the – uh, the league leader. Well, this is going to be overall Major League Baseball. But. Now, I will give you Ramon's playing a superior defensive position, but Canna can play that position too. Canna's 38 runs. Where do you think they rank in all of Major League Baseball? I'm going to say fourth. Uh, incorrect. He's actually tied for first in Major League Baseball with Bo Bichette and J.D. Martinez. So he's actually tied for the league in the American League and Major League Baseball. I, 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 I'm going with Canna as my all-star. It's a pretty great story for a guy that was a Rule 5 pick from San Jose. You're talking about a guy that is your longest tenure day. Yeah, your Rule 5 pick years ago is your longest tenured guy. I'm going to ask Martin Gallegos the same pressing question, which I know is going to make it made you sweat. It'll make him sweat. But I'm giving you one all-star. Why, what reliever would you pick over Mark Canna? Well, I'm just playing the numbers because you're, you've got so many guys that you're going to go off of looking at the guys. No, no, no. That's not That's not the question. Oh, I'm sorry. I was, the, sorry. The, the question is not, okay, you know, 
you get one guy and they always go with a pitcher. Yeah. The question is, who is the one guy you would put in the All-Star game? Oh, it, it, yeah. It, it's it, For me, I'm taking Laureano, but it'd be between those two guys. I haven't made enough case for Can- Mark Canna. You have an opinion, I have mine. Duct tape? I'll I- take the eight steals over the six. <laughs> you don't want a guy who's tied for the, the, the lead and, and run scored? And, and run scored? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is pretty impressive. And he does. And everyone's going to go, well, did you have any RBI? He hits leadoff. Of course he doesn't have any RBI. He's got 15 RBIs. He has RBIs. Yeah, but, I mean, everyone's going to go, well, well, look how many RBI uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr. has. He has, uh, how many does he have? 39. But you don't worry about RBIs from your leadoff guy. No, not at all. That's the point, yeah. Actually, do you know who leads baseball in RBI right now? It's a friend of the program. We just played. The series, season series is over with this team. AL East. Not Trey Mancini. Trey Mancini. Real good for him. 41 RBI. Uh, he's hitting three. What is he hitting? Where's his batting average? He's 279. He has an 864 OPS, 10 homers. Nice comeback year for him. You basically can already just send him the comeback player of the yeah. year award. He's he's having a great year. Then the two uh, the two guys that lead Major League Baseball in home runs, it's a tie. It's uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. Acuna. And uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Uh, finally breaking out for the Baby Jays. They each have 15. Well, I, you know, a guy that's going to get some votes and should is a guy that's here. And uh, the kid from Archbishop Mitty down in the South Bay, Mitch Hanniger, and did his damage last night against the A's. And you're just happy for him because he, he is a terrific talent, but – you know, as we talked about yesterday on A's Cast Live, that you know, three surgeries in seven months, and then you know the one injury that he had was so gruesome. You never want to see a young man with that kind of talent have his career derailed by by all these injuries. So Mitch Haniger will get votes, but Trey Mancini coming back from colon cancer. A young man getting colon, yeah. get, getting colon cancer, and then coming back from it, I, and, and as you just said, leading the league in RBIs. Yeah, Hanniger's fifth in home runs, uh, and he could be a future Met. I, mean, I saw him linked to the Mets today, uh, so we'll see. Mets are struggling; they got like seventeen guys on the injured list, including the polar bear. And oh, by the way, Francisco Lindor still hitting like one eighty nine on the year. Can you imagine Mitch Hanniger is having this? amazing comeback and everybody's so happy for him in the Pacific Northwest and you trade him. Yes. I could, I could picture it. Yes. It's Jerry. I was like, do you know who the GM is? <laughs> Jerry DePoto. Like he, another great story is our guy, Kendall Graveman, which by the way, we're going to talk to talk to Ryan Roland Smith about this. Seattle left guys down in San Diego because of COVID. So think about that. The Mariners come north. You leave those guys at the hotel. You know, you're basically ordering room service. you got to quarantine. I mean, if you're going you're gonna to quarantine in San Diego, I mean, there's worse things. But you're stuck to your room. You can't do anything. So what's going to happen with these guys once they're done with quarantine it's, uh, I mean, are you going to have to send them down to AAA? I don't know. As Martin Gallegos from MLB.com joins us, 
And we're we're talking to and we're gonna play it later today. Ryan Roland Smith, former big league pitcher, now does television for the Mariners. The Mariners left some of these guys down in San Diego because of COVID. It's like, what do you do with these guys after they've been sitting in a hotel for ten days? Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's still kind of a it's not as big of an issue, I guess, this year as last year as far as, you know, all the outbreaks, but I mean it's still not really a real solution there to figure out, you know, how do we handle the situation. I mean, I'm hoping this is the last time we ever got to deal with something like this this season, but it's it's obviously been tough for for the Mariners here recently with, with what happened with them. Yeah, it seems like there's not really an answer other than all you do is, you know, keep the guys locked up and, and hope for the best because, you know, you, you got a guy like Kendall Graveman who, who's now out who didn't test positive, but he was hanging out in the bullpen with those guys. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's, it's just difficult to kind of, you know, every every uh, every team I think can handle it a certain way, but um, you know, it's, there's no real guidelines here. It's still kind of all a new thing, evolving thing, and um, you know, it's 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 tough to see it's still going on here. Hopefully, hopefully we get a resolution here pretty soon. All right, so Cody danced around my question, and I'm going to give it to you. It's early, but if you had to pick one guy off this roster to be your all star, who would it be? That's a tough one. Um, if you're looking up and down the lineup, I think you know Ramon Laureano's got to be the guy. I mean, he's just the heart and soul of this team right now. There's there's other guys who are who are candidates there. Matt Olson's having a really good season at first base. Um, some of the pitchers you could possibly uh, consider there, but I think Ramon Laureano just the, what he means to this ball club and the numbers there too. I mean, he leads the team in homers right now. Um, so many big hits that he's had. I think he's a guy. You just look at him, and you're like, that's an all-star player right there. That's an exciting guy that fans want to see in an all-star game for sure. My guy would be Mark Canna. That's an underrated choice, but he's obviously a big part of this team. I mean, what he's done in the leadoff spot has been remarkable. That, they threw out that stat yesterday. Um, the top three on-base guys, you know, it was Mike Trout, uh, Juan Soto, and uh, Mark Canna. So Mark Canna's an elite company there. He's, he's been such a remarkable job in that uh, leadoff spot. It seems like they haven't missed a beat with, with Simeon gone in, in terms of that spot in the lineup. Yeah, I mean, he's tied for the lead, uh, the lead and run score to Major League Baseball. Yeah. Who would have ever thought that? <laughs> I mean, it's been fun to watch him grow. I mean, he's, he's you know, obviously a hometown guy here who the, who the fans really love, and uh, he's grown into a, a really good big league player where, you know, when he first came over, you thought maybe at, at best this guy can be like a platoon guy, um, but he's certainly established himself as an everyday guy. You know, Bob puts him in there every day without hesitation, and he's done such a good job carrying the load there at the top of the lineup all year. I, you know, whenever I watch Frankie Montas pitch, I have these – grand expectations because his arm he's got a great arm he's got great stuff and it just shocks me when he gives up home runs it's just it's just like you know I want him to be that guy that was in Houston that pitched with such conviction and went out and challenged the Astros and what do you think about Frankie Montas? Yeah, well, I think yesterday's start was really kind of the, the highlight of, of what he's been. You know, the kind of the two sides to him. There's a side of him that looks dominant. I mean, 11 strikeouts. I think he had 21 whiffs, which was a career high for him. So he's getting plenty of swings and misses. But the mistakes that he's been making this year have been obviously very costly with the homers. I mean, 11 homers given up. That's already a career high for him. And we're only, what, one and a half months to the season. So... Um, I think some of it might be a little bit of bad luck, but obviously, you know, just, you know, sudden lapses of command, you got to be able to not miss, you know, so badly right in the middle of the, of the zone because, I mean, big league hitters these days, especially on fastballs, that's what they're taught, you know, to just drive these balls out of the park. So, um, you know, with him, I think you see the tantalizing stuff that makes you think, 
he could still put this together, you know, and he still he hasn't been a, a starter in the big leagues for that long. So maybe there's still some time for him to kind of get to that next level. But you see the stuff that that makes you feel like he could be a really good top of the line starter. And there's also the frustrating part where he gives up, you know, some costly homers like last night. You know, when I think about that game Sunday in Anaheim, it kind of, you know, Ray Fossey and I always talk about it, that in a 162 game season, your warts are going to come out. You're going to get exposed. And one thing I think about with the athletics is the bottom part of the bullpen, which I think kind of got exposed on Sunday against the Angels. What what do you think is going to have to happen for the rest of this season? Is it trade? Is it Jesus Lazardo? Maybe AJ Puck? I mean, what are you going to do? You got to get some more power arms down there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, you see every year with the A's, especially towards the trade deadline that's approaching, they always seem to make at least one or two bullpen moves. And I, I ex- I'd expect them to be making the phone calls here um, this trade deadline as well. I mean, we saw, we heard yesterday about Luzardo possibly coming up, getting stretched out in the bullpen. We've obviously seen what he could do out of the bullpen. He's, his numbers have always been great out of the bullpen. And he that maybe that's the that's the key for him this year. Maybe you put Luzardo and Puck in there. Obviously, you have two uh, electric arms that you can call on who go maybe two innings each. And all of a sudden, you don't have to rely on Petit, Trevino, and Deekman so much. Maybe those guys kind of step up. But they obviously need to need to find some uh, formula there to kind of address those issues on days when they can't go to those big three in the back end because, you know, they're going to get overworked, and you're going to need other guys to step up. And right now, guys like Romo, guys like Goudouin, guys like Guerra, they've shown flashes that they can get the job done, but there's also been, like you mentioned, that game in Anaheim where they should have won that game, and they ended up losing a, a chance of possibly sweeping. You know, this guy that is going to pitch in the 6th, 7th, heck, maybe in the 5th, the bridge guy to the bridge guy, he's becoming really important, especially with pitchers, you know, they're they're out by the 5th inning or maybe the 6th inning. God, I mean, I mean, even look at what happened Sunday with Dylan Bundy being out two and two and a third innings. I mean, the, a guy that can give you quality innings, 5th, 6th, 7th, just talk about how this guy is becoming so valuable in baseball. Yeah, you know, every team, you, you look at every team, every successful team, you look in the playoffs. I mean, starters aren't, like you said, they're not going deep into games anymore. You need a, a deep bullpen with the guys, more than one guy who can go more than one inning. Um, and, you know, the A's, I think they have some guys who could maybe fill that role. Burt Smith came back, and he was on a roll there. He had kind of a little bit of a, of a bad outing recently, but um, he's a guy who could easily go two or three innings. He's got a good fastball. I mean, he's... He could easily fill in and step into that role, and if he could do that, if, one, if they get one of those guys to step into that role, it's just going to make the make their uh, you know whole bullpen that much better because they they're going to need somebody to do that um, because those back three guys, like I mentioned, they've just been overworked so much. You know, we got a lot of people writing about how to fix baseball and make baseball more entertaining, and I like this idea of a team only being able to shift so many times a game. Because then it would actually highlight the shift, right? Then all of a sudden it would be like super interesting. Like you get five shifts a game. So when a team did it, everybody that stands would be like, ooh, they're using the shift. You like that idea? It's interesting. I mean, uh, I think I'm, I think I'd, I'd be all for it. I mean, I mean, we've got to ask the, the, the players and coaches. I'm sure most of them would be for it. I mean, we've seen the shift. Um, you know, we've seen all the perfect games and you no know, hitters this year. Something's got to change, right? So maybe they experiment with that. Uh, in some league somewhere and, and uh, bring it to the majors at one, t- at one point. But uh, I'd be all for it. Why not? Yeah, you get like five a game. 
And, of course, they'd probably be used late in games when you think that, you know, the high leverage right. situations and everybody would be like, oh, we're shifting now. You know, because you know who I feel bad for are the guys that, you know, you grow up and hitting instructors tell you to hit it up the middle, have an up the middle approach. Well, now you hit it up the middle and there's a guy right there. Yeah, no, that uh, that series they had here uh, recently against Houston, you, we saw that a lot. Uh, Altuve just up the middle, taking away balls that you think are going to be, you know, two-run singles, two-run doubles. He was taking them away for outs. And so you, they're clearly, the, the hitters clearly get frustrated by that. So I'm sure they're going to be uh, at least uh, discussing something similar um, to kind of, you know, get not get rid of the shift completely, but maybe limit it a little bit like you mentioned. And, and, and you know what? I, I so many people in baseball are worried about change to where we have seen over the years, NFL makes change for offense, NBA makes change for offense, the NHL has done it. So it's like we're so paranoid about how the game used to be. There's not, Talk about there's nothing wrong with changes. We see it work in other sports. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean changes I think is always good, um, you know, in, in – and spurts, I don't think you know. I don't think any any league is ever going to like overhaul the whole thing. I don't think Major League Baseball is going to overhaul the game. It's just little subtle changes here and there. I think you know. Even you talk to Bob Melvin about these types of changes, and you know he even comes around to it. And he's a guy who's kind of you know on the on the border of old school and new school. And most of the most of the rules that they've implemented um, recently here, I think he's been he's come around to them and been a fan of. So I don't think uh, you know you know the change is necessarily a bad thing. I think more people you know should embrace it. All right, so David Force is going to give you a call, and he's going to ask, what do I need to do to improve this team? Where would you go? I think we mentioned that the bullpen. I mean, you've got to have a, a great bullpen, and you have to have guys who you can rely on, um, even, the, even you know, the, I guess the quote-unquote lower-tier guys who come in earlier in games. You need guys who can come in and shut the door, and if you're losing, you know, not let leads expand. We saw that so often in that early losing streak. There were close games. And then all of a sudden the starter comes out, the bullpen comes in, and all of a sudden it turns into a blowout. Those are those are things that you can't have happen throughout you know the course of the season. You got to be able to keep games close because this offense is good enough to come back late in games. But you just need that opportunity. If it's not pitching, where do you go? Um, it's a good question. Uh, I'd say, I mean, look, you, you look at the middle infield. Um, you know, Andrus's numbers are not great there. Um, they're still kind of figuring things out there with uh, Andrus and Pinder. I mean, I don't know. I, I've heard Trevor Story might be available. I don't know. Maybe they give the Rockies a call. But I know shortstop is. If there that was, if there would was a be position, incredible. I'm not. I'm not saying I've heard anything. But if sh if shortstop was available, um, I'm sure. I'm sure that's a position where they might be maybe look to upgrade. And I, I'm thinking that. I mean, he's a rental player, so you don't have to give up that much. Cody, go ahead, Cody. Get on. Co Cody has the idea. Let's bring back Kendall Graveman. Yeah, I mean, I think great. The year he's having with Seattle, and I mean. What they're still a couple games under right now, but uh, he'd be a good guy to look at, and he knows the team well, and he's have he's he's well like one of like two closers hasn't even have a run yet this year. Yeah, I know he's on the COVID list right now, but he'd be awesome in this bullpen. Hey, how about how about how about Graveman and Hanniger together? Bring the Bay Area kid back home. I mean, bring old Mitchie back to the Bay Area. That that'd be that'd be that'd be nice. I mean, Graveman, yeah, for sure. Graveman is definitely the type of bullpen arm, though, that I think that they'll be looking at to try to bring in. When you start thinking about timeline, when would you like to see some moves start to be made? I know here we are in May, but we're about to be in June, and June flies by quickly. Yeah, I think June. Once you once you get to June, which is I mean next week basically, um, 
I think that's when the when the phone calls start to you know become a little bit more frequent. Um, certainly, when you get to July and the All Star break, you, you're seeing a lot a lot of times now earlier and earlier before the deadline, teams are making moves because you know they they want to you know improve the team now and and not have to wait until the final month or final two months of the season and. Um, I, I expect them to be active as always, you know, with the trade deadline stuff. And I'm sure by next week, I mean, I'm sure they're having conversations now and inter- even internally and maybe even externally. But I'm sure they're going to talks are going to heat up, you know, as we go into the next couple of weeks. For sure. Hey, they're starting to talk about that. Uh, they're going to start loosening some things up. You might be going back on the road. Yeah, I'll be in uh, Seattle next week, actually. So um, we're starting to slowly go back onto the road, which is exciting. Um, I'll be in Seattle and I think they're going to New York Yankee Stadium. I'll be out there as well. So. Um, slowly getting back to normalcy, which is nice. It'll be good to be on the road again and maybe get some one-on-one player interviews. It sounds like we might be able to talk to guys down on the field a little bit more frequently here. So um, slowly but surely, fingers crossed that we can get back to, you know, by the end of the season, maybe a little bit stuff that we were used to doing um, before the pandemic. Great stuff as always, my friend. Check him out. Uh, You can read him on the A's website. Martin Gallegos here from MLB.com. Coming up next, a top 10 with David Feldman right here on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live continues from Ricky Henderson Field. Here's Chris Townsend. You know, it's pretty funny what we got going here in our booth. Cody and I have become like AMPM here at the Coliseum. We've got chips, we've got water, we got we got everything you need in our booth. We've been hoarding since since you and I are both off carbs. Uh, what do you need? Well, I, I'm just more disappointed that you're you're gonna completely just bypass the whole time that Martin agreed with me that Ramon Laureano's the All Star. I think you guys are completely wrong. Well, Feldy's an expert; he'll know the answer. I, I think I, I I think a man of his stature and a man of his knowledge will understand that Mark Canna is leading the league in runs, throwing the home runs, throw in the way he runs the bases, and he plays defense, that if there was to be one all-star from this roster, it would be Mark Canna. Agree or disagree? Well, it's May 25th, so let's keep that in mind. You're saying we have a long way to go? I say we have a long way to go. I remember there was, a, there was an A's pregame show I think the second week of the season is Ramon Laureano, your all-star. It's two weeks in. <laughs> Relax. But, no, I think Canna and Laureano both have very good cases. I think the one thing that Mark Canna is doing, he's making himself a truckload of money. He's going to be a free agent. Oh. And he is already on the boards when you look at, you know, most important free agents going into 2022. And as far as outfielders, he's on that board. And if he continues to hit home runs at the rate he's hitting them at, and getting on base, that market is wide open for him. When did the Rule 5 draft start? Oh, that's been going on forever. Roberto Clemente was a Rule 5 draft pick. Okay, so when in the history of baseball, and it might be Clemente, that your Rule 5 guy is the longest tenured player in your organization? Yeah, it's so rare. I mean, the A's have had guys come in and out and not last very long at all, a week or two weeks, and be offered back. Kai Tom, great example, right? For Mark Hanna to be what to do what he's done is the top of the Rule 5 guys. George Bell was a Rule 5 guy with, with the Blue Jays, uh, an MVP winner. He's, he's another one of those famous Rule 5 guys along with Clemente. Um, it's just so 
rare that a Rule 5 guy sticks and then sticks for a long time and is productive for a long time. Yeah, I think of our guy Bip Roberts, who you see on A's pre- and post-game live. Uh, but, of course, you had Tony Gwynn there, so he was never going to be the longest-tenured guy. It's just when I brought that up to David Forrest, he was like, I didn't think about that. Yeah, it just doesn't happen. And a lot of the reason for that is the player who is a Rule 5 selection, he's still a minor leaguer when you take him. And now you're taking him away from the minors for a year, which could really slow down somebody's progress, right? You need those minor league seasons to become better and better. If you don't have that, for a lot of guys, that's going to set them back. It hasn't with Marcana. I mean, he's just gotten better, and his skill set has improved, right? They talk about him getting on base. He gets on base, and now he has power. He's one guy you do not look at the RBI numbers because he – one at bat a game will not bat with a runner on base as the leadoff spot. So the RBI numbers are a little off because of that. But for power and on base and defense and the fact that he can play a lot of different places, really impressive. So there have been some guys who played for the A's and then left the A's and haunted the Oakland Athletics. Yeah, and that's what we're looking at today is guys who uh, you know, basically were with the A's, and I'm not talking about guys who are already established big leaguers, guys like Don Baylor or Harold Baines who came to the A's, but guys who either made their mark with the A's or got their first chance with the A's and then came back later and just tortured the athletics. <laughs> you know, guys, you just couldn't get out. It would just drive you crazy. And, again, we're not talking guys like Disco Danny Ford or Chet Lemon or Nelson Cruz, right, who are A's minor leaguers but never actually made it up to the big club with the A's. You had to actually play for the A's to be on this list. Chet Lemon was an A's minor leaguer? He was a first-round draft pick of the Oakland Athletics. Really? Why did they get rid of him? Uh, at that point, they had a lot of outfielders. This was the early 70s, and they were pretty well-stocked in the outfield. And they had a young Claudel Washington who was going to play. And so they, they moved him. They moved Disco Danny Ford to the Orioles. And Disco Danny, he was, he was a tremendous right-handed power hitter. All right, honorable mention. So two guys who just missed making this list. One is uh, Mickey Tettleton. <laughs> Mickey Tettleton. I remember Mickey Tettleton with the A's was just not good. He was a switch hitting catcher who didn't show much power, didn't show much ability to get on base. Goes to Baltimore and becomes a totally different player. He starts eating Fruit Loops for breakfast. That's what they said, Fruit Loops. I think he started taking something <laughs> else when he was in Texas, but possibly, allegedly. Possibly. But then all of a sudden he becomes a switch hitting power hitter who gets on base, who walks 100 times a year. And then he, he would destroy the A's. He had 18 homers versus the A's, 83 walks in 98 games. who just drive you nuts. Uh, the other guy who might still make this list in the future, but he's only played seven games against the A's, but he's hit 300 with three homers, and that's Max Muncy. <laughs> Max Muncy was terrible with the A's. Yeah, except for break, terrible. Uh, breaking up Kobe Lewis's uh, no-hitter in the ninth inning. Other than that, he didn't really have many sparkling moments. He didn't look the part of a big leaguer, right? He just he didn't look right. Well, and what always gets me, and I kind of got a rule of thumb, if somebody does something out of the ordinary, like Lance Armstrong, all of a sudden Lance, Larm, Lance Armstrong has a bigger heart than other people and it pumps more blood or Barry Bonds really started working out with weights. Whenever you see something that's never – so whenever I think of Max Muncy and all of a sudden he went to some swing coach and it all changed, I always have a little question in the back of my mind. Question for Max Muncy. But he, he's hurt the A's in those few games. And then, of course, we have to bring up Ricky. Uh, Ricky doesn't make this list because he didn't really torture the A's. 
on his many, many stops on other teams. Uh, you know, with a Yank- as a Yankee, he only hit 251. Uh, the only time it really hurt the A's is in 93 when he went to the Blue Jays. He was having a great year in 93. Uh, should have been the A's All-Star. It was Terry Steinbach. Should have been Ricky. But he played six games against the A's that year, hit 300, two homers, a four for four in steals, hit a leadoff homer against Mike Moeller. Uh, but with the Padres in 97, he only went three for 17. What about Seattle Mariner great Ricky Henderson? Seven games against the A's in 2000 as a Mariner. He hit 192. He had uh, one game as an Angel against the A's. What about as a Red oh, Sox? The Red Sox, he played six <laughs> games. He had 273 with six RBIs. Uh, he did not face the A's when he was a Met or a Dodger. <laughs> Ricky, he played for so many teams, it's unbelievable. God bless him. All right, number 10. Number 10 is Wayne Gross. Wayne Gross, longtime A's third baseman. He was an A's all-star in 1977 when he had 22 home runs. Uh, basically the everyday third baseman from 77 to 82. Uh, you know, showed some power. But you know what a typical Wayne Gross at bat was? Wayne Gross would come up. First pitch would be like an off-speed pitch away in the dirt, and he'd swing and miss. So now you're already frustrated with him. And then he'd get a fastball, and he'd drill it down the right field line, and it would hook just foul, just foul, just missing a homer by like two feet. And then the third pitch, he would pop out to the third baseman. He had almost all these at-bats. Like He was the most frustrating player, Wayne Gross. Uh, so finally, the A's traded for Carney Lansford. They didn't have a need for Wayne Gross. Uh, he goes to the Baltimore Orioles and tortures the A's. And he was not a good player with the Orioles. In two years with the Orioles, he had only 224. In his 17 games versus the A's, he hit 361 Oof. with four homers. There's a game on YouTube from 1985 where he hits two homers, where he's just saying he's terrible. He's terrible. He's Wayne Gross. Just killed the A's. So frustrating. Yeah, I get it. But, but you got Carney. You got Carney, and, you know, and they need it. Wayne... He did hit a homer in the 81 Division Series against the Royals. That was very nice. Uh, <laughs> but he was just a frustrating put. Long foul, pop up to the third baseman. So you're saying three pitches and he was out of here. Yeah. And, but, again, like you were talking about last night with Reggie in the strikeouts. Yeah. Wayne Gross did not strike out. He had, like, his career high was, like, 80, more, mostly in the 60 to 65 range. And if you would have asked me as a kid watching him, I thought he struck out all the time. But stats say no because he was always popping out to the third baseman. Did that make sense what I was saying last night? 100%. Like, like Reggie Jackson, for his career, struck out more than anybody by a lot, but yet still hit for average. Yeah. And he still made contact. Yeah. And he took the big swings. But, it's, you know, what they did back then in the 80s and even the early parts of the 90s, striking out was still looked upon as bad. Right? That was it. You were ashamed to strike out. You were at least putting the ball in play. And so you were going to hit for a higher average because you were going to make more contact. So I didn't see – I mean, I was a little kid. I didn't see the Bucky Dent game. But so they aired it on MLB Network uh, during COVID, and I was watching the Bucky Dent game, and Reggie got two strikes and choked up. Yeah. And I was, like, watching that going, why the hell don't all these guys do that? Two-strike approach. And we've talked about it a lot. It's gone. There's no such thing anymore. Mark Lineson was great the other day uh, on the show where he just said – Every swing's the same. Yep. Every, doesn't matter the count. Doesn't matter the pitch. Every swing is the same. Number nine. Number nine is Houston Street. Houston Street, the Texas Longhorn. You know, rookie of the year with the A's in 05. 37 saves for the A's in the, in the AL West champ year of 2006. 2008, things got a little rocky, and he wasn't seeing eye to eye with the manager, Bob Guerin. 
Um, all of a sudden, there's, a, there, there's quite a few of us who didn't see <laughs> yeah. eye to eye with Bob there, there are many. All of a sudden, Brad Ziegler's closing games, and Houston Street's not happy about it. And he gets traded to the Rockies. He was part of the Matt Holiday deal. Uh, he took it out on the A's. Uh, pitching for the Rockies, pitching for the Padres, the Angels. 19 career games versus the A's. 14 for 14 in saves. Wow. In 2009, his first time back with the Rockies, he saved three straight games. They just kept going to him because he was, he was going to give it to the A's. And the A's had no chance That's against impressive. him. That's impressive. 14 for 14 in his career versus the A's. And he's just number nine? He's just number nine. <laughs> okay, <laughs> number eight. Number eight is another A from that 2006 team, and that's Nick Swisher. Swishalicious? Swishalicious. Friend of the program? Oh, you know, Swish, fan favorite. He's a guy I love the guy. Right? I mean, nobody had the energy like, like, Nick, like Nick Swisher. So the A's trade him to the White Sox. They get uh, Ryan Sweeney and Gio Gonzalez. Swingles. Swingles. Uh, and his first year with the White Sox, he did not hurt the A's. He only hit 200, uh, only hit one home run. Uh, did not get along with Ozzie Guillen. There, if you've ever seen it, there's a clip on YouTube where Ozzie Guillen was doing like the White Sox postgame show because now he was a TV analyst. This was just a few years ago. He just destroyed Nick Swisher. Really? Destroyed him. So you never believe a word Nick Swisher says. He's a liar. You've got to look it up. YouTube, Guillen Swisher. It's unreal. Uh, but then, you know, Swisher's with the Yankees, and that's when he just was hammering the A's. 39 games, hit 320 with 15 homers. And again, he wasn't putting up that type of numbers with the Yankees and the Indians where he was ending his career. Uh, I guess the A's just lit him up. Hit 380 with runners in scoring position. Wow. Just torturing the A's because it's Nick Swisher. He doesn't hit anybody. He's hitting the A's. Uh, you know, my uh, thing for Ryan Sweeney is looks like Tarzan <laughs> plays like Jane. Oh, man. <laughs> Swingles. Oh. How can a guy be that big? And just it just has no power. No, none. He's six four. He's built. He's huge. So again, frustrating player with the A's because you did you expect him to hit bombs? No, he's hit little trinkles to right field. Yeah, oh, it was unbelievable. All right, number seven. Number seven is Tony Armas. Oof. You know Tony was a great A. He was part of that outfield with Ricky and Murph and Sports Illustrated the whole deal and big powers in eighty and eighty one. He tied for the AL lead in home runs and. You know, after the 82 season, the A's made the trade for Carney Lansford. Of course, because we can get rid of Wayne Gross. We need Carney. Uh, but Tony Armas was the one to go to Boston. And he had some big years in Boston. Led the league in homer and RBIs one year. Um, but against the A's, he just shown playing for the Red Sox and the Angels. This is a 252 career hitter who hit 299 versus the A's. 935 OPS. 14 bombs. Big moments. Even at the end of his career with the Angels when he wasn't playing that well, he would still come up in the A's and just boom, bam. He was just he just took it out on us. Just took it out on the A's. He was comfortable here. He was very comfortable here. And you know, I love Tony as a kid because he had the big right arm. And they talk about the great outfielders, you know, with who could throw. Armist got a little short shift that I always thought because his arm was tremendous. Number six. Number six is Carlos Pena. Oh. Yeah, you know, Carlos Pena. MLB Network, front of the program, Carlos Pena. You know, he comes in, he's part of two thousand two. You've seen him in Moneyball. Uh, he was going to be the A's first baseman. It wasn't going to be Hatterberg. It was going to be Carlos Pena was going to be the first baseman because he was a great defensive first baseman, and Hatterberg was going to be more of a DH. Uh, and he got his chance with the A's. Played the first 40 games. Hit 218. Showed some power, seven home runs, but the A's were frustrated. The whole you know Black Monday, and they sent everybody down and traded Jeremy Giambi. The whole team changed. 
And eventually they trade Carlos Pena to the Tigers uh, for Ted Lilly. Uh, again, not shown in the movie, but that's what actually happened. Uh, 81 career games with the A's. He hits 20 homers. And if you look at just this century, since 2000, he is the 10th most home runs hit against the Oakland Athletics. And he was playing in the East. Played for Tampa Bay, playing for Detroit. Didn't matter. Faced the A's, and you could just see there, there was payback in his mind because he never got a fair shake here. That whole thing that transpired at the end of May. Again, this Black Monday, Frank Menachino got sent down. Jeff Tam got sent down because Billy was frustrated. The A's had just got swept in Toronto. There was a little bit of an incident on the plane ride coming home, and it was just time to clean house. And, unfortunately, Carlos Pena was part of that. What happened on the plane? Yeah, let's just say Jeremy Giambi was a little rambunctious on the ride home. Uh, well, they won 20 games in a row because of Scott Hatterberg. Well, they won the 20th game because of Scott Hatterberg. No, they won. All 20 because of him? Yeah, they, 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 they wrote a book yeah. about how important Scott Hatterberg <laughs> was, and then they turned it into a movie, and it wasn't for Scott Hatterberg. I don't even know if this organization exists without Scott Hatterberg. Well, you know, in some sense, a team of nine Scott Hatterbergs would be unbeatable uh because i mean miguel tejada did nothing his birthday today by the way is it really it's today's miguel tejada's birthday and now i'm gonna make you all feel old 47 wow you 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 want to feel old my first ever play-by-play gig when i did the san jose giants was down in modesto and he was supposedly a 20 year old shot uh shortstop when the a's high a team was modesto and he was leading the league in home runs. Now, obviously, he wasn't 20, but it was like, this kid's going to be impressed. And don't put him in the book either because he didn't do anything. Hudson Mulder and Zito didn't do anything. Yeah. Scott Hatterberg. Why? Because he does what? He gets on base. <laughs> Number five. Number five. This player only appeared in two games versus the A's, and he's number five. You know Why? No hitter. He was the 1990 World Series MVP, Jose Rijo. Jose Rijo with the Cincinnati Reds. I mean, you know, he was with the A's. He came to the A's when he was 20 years old from the Yankees, part in the Ricky deal, right? Uh, He was young. Still has the A's record for strikeouts in a nine-inning game with 16. Uh, But the A's moved him to bring in Dave Parker. Good move. Yeah. right. You get Dave Parker. The 1990 World Series – He's the MVP of the 1990 World Series. Two starts, 2-0. and He allowed only one run in 15 and third innings, 14 Ks. And it all starts game one. And I will remember this for the rest of my days. Frank Pooley's the home plate umpire. And the crowd is going crazy. Ricky's up to bat, leadoff batter. The first pitch is on the outside corner. Frank Pooley gives a big strike. Second pitch is about six inches off the outside corner. Strike! I mean, he's doing Rico Palazzo from, from uh, Naked Gun at this point. The third pitch is a good foot off the plate. The huge strike three, the whole thing. And right then I said, this is over. This game's over. It was slider, 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 slider. That's all. And Eric Davis got hurt in game one. No, no, he got hurt in game four. Game four? Yeah, that's how he got left here in the hospital. He, he got, made the dive in, in left field. What? Hurt his kidney. Hurt his, and I remember that. It was like, dude, Eric Davis. But no, Eric oh. the Red. That was game. I thought that was game one. Game one, he hit the homer off Stu in the first inning. Barry Larkin gets on, and the whole time leading up to the series, a few days in between, they talked about the Reds' running game and how that was going to be a problem for the A's. And Dave Stewart decides to pitch from a stretch but a sidestep, and he never did a sidestep. 
Barry Larkin got in his head, does a slide step. Boom, Eric Davis, two-run homer. And who was it? Was it Billy Hamilton? Billy, they Billy, could, Billy Hatcher. Billy Hatcher. You couldn't get him out. Nine for 12 in the series. They finally broke his wrist in game four. That's the only way we can get him out of the lineup. <laughs> oh, my God. But Jose Rio was unbelievable in that series, right? The MVP just tortured the A's. And you could almost feel it, right? Former A, didn't get the chance. Now he's on the mound. Ugh. And the fact that that team got swept is still to this day. You didn't win a game. Oh. Game two. Game two was brutal. Jose couldn't catch the ball in right center field. Billy Bates with this. Oh what was God. the uh, what? Which game was Joe Oliver beat Eck? That was game two. So game two. This is what's so frustrating about this game is we the A's had gone through the nasty boys, and now X on the mound. And if they get through the bottom of the inning, Rick Mailer is coming into pitch. Rick Mailer. Right, and he's about 67 <laughs> years old at this point. And the A's are just going to hammer him. All you have to do is get out of the inning. Billy Bates gets the stupid single, and then Joe Oliver with the single down the line, and the A's lose. It's just oh, heartbreaking. And then Chris Sabo in game three with two homers. Oh, and those goggles. Oh, my God. Ugh. I can't like, – like that team, it's just what – they weren't that good. The Reds were good. I but mean, they, they weren't were, that good. To I mean, they sweep they, the A's. They led wire to wire that year in the National League West. I mean, they they, they were, didn't have the firepower of the A's though. But they had the nasty boys, and they had the lead late. They were going to win. It's just it was a bad matchup for the A's. The starting pitchers for the Reds were a bad matchup for A's hitters. Um, it was a bad matchup, and they were hot. And the A's, you know, that first inning, I'm telling you, from Frank Pulley ringing up Ricky to Eric Davis hitting that homer, it just changed everything. Number four? Number four is another Hall of Famer. That's Catfish Hunter. Ooh, we don't talk, that's juicy. We don't talk much about Catfish as a Yankee, right? Especially around here. But, you know, he was good with the Yankee, Hall of Fame worthy. Obviously, he came back against the A's. He made 13 starts as a Yankee versus the A's. Seven and three. The 2.86. Seven complete games. One of them was 11 and two-third inning complete game. Especially in the 12th inning before Campy got a sack fly against him. What is a complete game? Yeah, exactly. That's when you pitch all the innings in the game. Really? You can do that? You can do it. It's allowed. All right. Uh, so Catfish, I mean, he's, he's Catfish Hunter, but he just, he just kind of tortured the A's because he would play with them, and he came, and he knew all these guys, and he was just Catfish. He just beat the A's. Every time he took them out, it felt like he beat them. You know what I don't understand is that, okay, he won World Series with the A's. He played in the biggest market you got in New York playing for the Yankees. And yet, when people talk about greatest pitchers of all time, they don't ever bring him up. They don't because he doesn't have the 300 wins. And people look back at his record now, people who didn't watch him pitch or weren't around in the 70s uh, to see what he was all about. And his numbers don't stack up to the greatest pitchers of all time. You know, his numbers don't compare to Greg Maddox. They don't compare to Pedro Martinez. But for what he was in his time as a guy who would pitch – every fourth or fifth day, make every start, complete most of them, win 20 games five years in a row, and in the postseason just be nails. And, you know, as you mentioned again last night, solo home runs. Yeah, he gave up a lot of homers, most of them solos. Guys on base, he would get out of it. He was a Hall of Fame pitcher. Maybe doesn't have the Hall of Fame numbers if you look at it now, but if you watched him pitch and watched his career, there was never a doubt he was going to be a Hall of Famer. Number three. This guy should have been a Hall of Famer. He's not, but he tortured the A's, and that's Jose Canseco. My guy. 
Jose. I when I was in high school, I loved Jose. Oh, how could I, I mean, he was Jose. <laughs> All we heard about in the mid-80s, Jose was coming. He's in the minor leagues. He's hitting bombs. He finally comes up at the end of 85, hits a homer off Jeff Russell that one hops the back concession stands in left center field. Nobody hit balls like this. Right? Then he wins the rookie of the year. Uh, 88, he's 40-40, two-strike approach, let, let him hit 300 that year. He would go to right field. He'd go to right, he's spread out. Boom. Jose was great. And then we know he got traded in 92, and he, he never let the A's forget about it. Uh, 54 games against the A's. He had 16 homers, the 924 OPS, hit safely in his first nine games versus the A's. Uh, he also had big moments, had a three-run walk-off homer at Fenway Park of Carlos Reyes. I think that ball is still going. Red Sox great Jose Canseco. And then gets better. <laughs> then with the Yankees in 2000, destroys Mark Mulder. First at Yankee Stadium, then a week later here in the Coliseum. Just kills him. Mulder had nothing to get him out with. Jose did nothing with the Yankees except for those two games versus the A's. Won a World Series ring. He got a World Series and got one at bat, struck out. Jose Canseco. Yeah, I agree. You know, it, it, I mean, obviously we know the steroid issue, but you just think of – you know, when we were growing up, you would have said no question Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco would be Hall of Famers. Yeah, I don't think there was any question about it. In uh, the talent level that Jose had, the all-around game, the five-tool guy, right, and the charisma, and then McGuire with the home runs. He had 49 homers as a rookie, right? Skinny Mark McGuire had 49 homers. No one had ever done that. He had 30-plus home runs each of his first four seasons. No one had ever done that. These were Hall of Fame beginnings to their careers. And and I uh, the one thing we always need to give Jose Canseco credit on is that he did 40-40 in a season that mattered. Everybody else who's done 40-40 was on a team that didn't finish 500. Yeah, this is 104 win A's. This is an A's team making it back to the playoffs for the first time since 81, and he was as dominant a baseball player that, that could be with his power and speed. We just hadn't seen that all together for a full season. Number two. So number two is a guy maybe people don't remember, but I remember him, and he pisses me off to this day, and that's Brian Harper. Brian Harper? Brian Harper. As, as Cody would say, who? So Brian Harper. Let me tell you the story of Brian Harper. <laughs> so 1987, he's a 27-year-old journeyman. He'd been with the Angels, the Pirates, the Cardinals, a catcher. Uh, could never really make it. The A's brought him up in 87, played 11 games with them. He goes four for 17. Ends the season. So at the end of the 87 season, he has a career average of 233 in 205 games. Brian Harper. He's nothing. He's nobody, right? 1988, he signs with the Twins. Hits 305 in seven seasons with the Twins. Hits 381 in the 91 World Series. He is a huge offensive force of the Minnesota Twins during their second World Series run. And he never let the A's forget it. He hits 351 in his 63 games versus the A's, 431 with runners in scoring position against the A's. Every time the A's and Twins played, and those were battles in those years, right? Those were the two top teams in the AL West. Brian Harper would come through with a base hit with a runner in scoring position. The A's couldn't get him out. Brian Harper actually comes back to the A's in 1995. He comes back and he goes 0 for 7 and then retires. I, I, I honestly, I don't remember this guy at all. Don't remember Brian I, Harper. I don't remember Brian. Do you remember in the World Series when Lonnie Smith bowls over the catcher? Yes. That's Brian Harper. Oh, wow. 
Like I re- like I'm looking at a picture of him. By the way, uh, played for the Nashville Sounds in 1986. Yeah, yeah. He. Uh, I mean, he all of a sudden he became this high average hitter with the Twins. He hit 300 over seven years with them as their everyday catcher. And again, 381 in that 91 World Series. He was just. And he was nothing until he got to Minnesota. And then he just tortured the A's every time. Base hit. Number one. Number one's the guy we already mentioned, Reggie Jackson. Reggie always took it out on the A's. He, you know, his whole Charlie Finley dealings and everything that happened here, um, he never let the A's forget. Uh, you know, his first year with Baltimore, he played eight games against the A's in 76, hit 308 as a Yankee. He has a 996 OPS with 15 Oof. bombs, grand slams, 34 and 14 record versus the A's. Goes to the Angels for those five years, 924 OPS, 32 and 26 record versus the A's. And that's when an A's team was getting better and the Angels weren't as good. But he hits 30 homers in 114 games versus the A's, has a winning record of 24 games over 500. At one point, had a 17 game hit streak versus the A's where he hit 446. Oh. With eight homers and 27 runs batted in. <laughs> and just big moments. I mean, it's just, Reggie, I still remember the Grand Slam. There was a Twilight doubleheader here. The A's win the first game on a Mickey Klutz walk-off home run off Ron Guidry. Mickey Klutz walk-off homer against Ron Guidry. And that kind of pissed off that Yankee dugout. Because the first time Reggie comes up with the bases loaded against Matt Keough in game two, he hits a ball that would have been off the Xfinity sign now. Just crushed it. What was the deal that Reggie had with the Angels, like he got, I don't know if he got the gate or the parking or what What was the it deal? Was, it was parking. It was an attendance clause, and he got a percentage of the parking. Gene Autry was so desperate, he <laughs> gave up the parking to Reggie he gave part of the parking to Reggie. Five-year deals with the Angels. And, you know, Reggie, he wanted to stay with the Yankees. I mean, he really, because that's who he knew. That's where the biggest stars are. Uh, but they had Dave Winfield at that time, and George Steinbrenner starting to fall in love with Dave Winfield. And so Reggie went to the next market that he could think of to be a star, and that was the Los Angeles market. Couldn't go to the Dodgers because he couldn't play the field really much anymore. Become the DH for the Angels. Played his first game as an Angel in this stadium in opening night, 82. Wasn't his first game against the Yankees he hit a home run and pissed off all the Yankee fans? He did. He was having a horrible start to the year, and it's kind of a rainy night. And there's Reggie in the cleanup spot. Hits a home run. Yankee fans go crazy. Because they loved Reggie. And they started booing George Steinbrenner, who's also there. They're cheering for Reggie and booing Steinbrenner. And then before you know it, George Steinbrenner's calling uh, Dave Winfield Mr. May. Mr. May. What a great nickname. And then had him, like, followed by private investigators. Uh, George Steinbrenner would get suspended in by baseball that was a wild time it was and you know what george steinbrenner was and i hate to say this on this show but he was donald trump of baseball right in the 70s and 80s that's how he acted he was a megalomaniac who believed he was in control of everything and could make any decision for anybody at any time uh he was fiercely loyal to people who were loyal to him uh but he was he was a scary man he had all the power in new york and he spent a lot. Of, like the, the difference between him and Charlie Finley is he had no problem spending money. No, he knew what it takes to win. And, you know, as, when CBS bought the Yankees and Steinbrenner's part of that deal and eventually becomes, you know, the primary owner, he had no problem spending money. He saw the worth of the club. You know, I'm going to redo Yankee Stadium, which they did. We're going to be a World Series team. And he saw the Yankees could own New York. 
and spending money was not a factor. And he would overpay for players to bring into New York. Some of it worked. Some of it didn't work. For a long time, it didn't work, especially in the 80s. Uh, but yeah, he, Don Manley only played in the playoffs one time. One time, and that was in 95 with Buck yeah. Showalter. Um, you know, he got the traded for Ricky. In the 85 Yankees were a tremendous team. Uh, but they just could never quite get over the hump, even though the money that they spent. My favorite Yankee story of all time is Mel Hall walking down the streets of New York with two cougars. <laughs> like, the animal, the cougars. <laughs> he had two cougars. Like, that, that's, like, totally illegal. And Mel Hall's walking down the street with the cougars and gets arrested. I'll never forget no, that. And, you know, that was part of the, the sales pitch to get Reggie to sign with the Yankees when he was a free agent is they actually took him on a walk in downtown New York. And watch the fans react to Reggie. And they, you know, every fan's Reggie Jackson, Reggie. And this is a guy coming off a year with the Orioles. Kind of lost baseball and as far as yeah. the national spotlight. They knew who he was and that really sold him on being a Yankee. That he knew he could walk down the street and be the superstar that he always thought he was. The Reggie bar. All right, go down to your top ten once again. Well, the Reggie bar. you got to do the one line. Catfish Hunter's line about the Reggie bar. You, you unwrap it and it tells you how good it is. <laughs> Hayes Tortured, Wayne Gross, number 10, Houston Street, that 14 for 14 in saves, Nick Swisher, Tony Armas, Carlos Pena, Jose Rio, 1990 World Series MVP, Catfish, Jose Canseco, Brian Harper, look him up, everybody. Look at his numbers. Look what he did to the A's. Look what he did with the Twins. He pissed you off. If you were an A's fan in the late 80s, early 90s, you know that he pissed you off. And number one, Mr. October, Reggie Jackson. Never let the A's forget that they traded him away. The Hall of Famer. Great stuff. Great list. Good, good to see you guys in person. This is awesome. Yes. We got to do this again soon. Uh, do we want to go right to Ryan? Uh, we do. Ryan Roland Smith, former pitcher, now a broadcaster for the Seattle Mariners. Join me earlier today right here on A's Cast Live. Ryan, it's great to have you on the program again. How you been up there in the Pacific Northwest? I've been doing great. It's good to have uh, 162 games to look forward to, hopefully. Hopefully there's no hiccups. But, uh, you know, we're just talking before I jumped on. Uh, last time I spoke to you guys, we were in the midst of a 60-game season. It just didn't feel right. No, and you've actually had, uh, with the Mariners, you've had a little COVID issue. So it, it just goes to show that we want to think we're completely out of this in the sport, but but we really aren't. Yeah, no, it was interesting. Out of nowhere, it kind of popped up. And we're all thinking to myself, okay, are they going to have to postpone some of these games? What are they going to do? How are they going to work around this? But uh, they lost four pitches, and then two of them came right back. Two of them are still... I think sitting in a hotel room quarantining in San Diego somewhere. Uh, and then we lost Kendall Graveman, who you guys know all too well. Yeah. Uh, Kendall Graveman has been on an absolute tear. We lose him um, due to the fact that yeah, he, he was in close contact with uh, someone with COVID. And it's like, man, now that, that really hurts when, when you start losing players, impact players like that. Yeah, it's got to be so bizarre to be somebody on a team like this where, as you said, you're sitting in a hotel room in San Diego. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. Uh, your team's up in Oakland. I just can't imagine what this is like. Yeah, it's bizarre. You know, it's, it's interesting. Last Christmas, I went back and quarantined for two weeks in Australia. I had to go back and do some things and see my family. And, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. It was rough. And I, Obviously, I was there for two weeks. Hopefully, these guys aren't sitting there for two weeks. But it was rough. I mean, everyone just assumes you sit there watching Netflix and, and chill out. But when you're in the middle of a season, and some of these pitchers too, some of these young guys 
they're just getting their feet where they're just starting to get in a rhythm. And all of a sudden, you're stuck in a hotel room. You can't play catch. You can't really talk to anyone. You can't watch the games. Your team's off in another city. It's the most bizarre you know, interaction or not or lack of that you can think about. I mean, you think about it, coming off, come off a, it's probably better off you come off uh, an ankle or a shoulder or something like that. At least you can play catch. At least you can see a trainer. At least you can throw some sim games. These guys are stuck in a hotel room bouncing a tennis ball off a wall, I'm guessing. It's just a, it's just a bizarre situation. Wow. I didn't even think about that from a standpoint, whether you're a hitter or you're a pitcher, that you just yeah. can't do anything for, I don't know, 10 days. What do you think happens? Are you going to have to send these guys down to AAA to, to build up their arm strength again? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I think even – it doesn't matter what point in the career that you're, you're in. If you're a salty veteran, hey, I've been doing this forever, I'm good. Or if you're a young player, you still have to get some of those reps. You really do. Uh, and, and, again, I just feel for some of the so – two of the pitchers, Will Vest, he was a rule five pick. He's been throwing the ball really well. Another kid, Drew Steckenrider, who's finally healthy – Came in from the Mets. He's starting to find a home, and he's in a really good rhythm. Well, guess what? Now you're in a hotel room. So I think it is advantageous as much as tough as it is to have to go and maybe do a rehab assignment or whatever it is. But you've got to do some sort of you know game speed activity after coming off a hotel room. You know, after being away, being isolated, all those little things that contribute. Because you know what, you find yourself pumping. You know, 88 when you should be throwing 95 because your arms aren't in shape and you get hit around a couple of times, and then all of a sudden now you're, you're you're on that kind of rhythm. So it's just an interesting dynamic. I'm sure we'll see a little bit more of this pop up as teams slowly start to get to that that vaccine threshold, uh, vaccinated threshold. But uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but you know I get it too. Yeah, well, you know, one thing I've been really happy about is just to get the minor leaguers back. I mean, I, I mean, you know what it's like. You get your opportunity to be a professional baseball player. And so many of these guys had their career taken away from them last year. I'm just so happy yeah. that they're back and uh, hopefully knock on wood, we can have a season and all these young men can continue to, to strive for, for their dream. Yeah, you make a great point. And this is something that I thought was really neglected last year. Um, when you're talking about you know, the minor leagues and talking about the development of these young players and, and even guys coming up, making their debut in 2020 from an, alternate site when you're not getting real at-bats because you're facing your buddies on an alt site and then you make your debut and you know, as crazy as it sounds but you don't have your family there to enjoy it with you all these little things that you really don't think about but especially on the minor league side i, I remember talking to you know some a, a couple of friends of mine who you know they're, they're you know they've had a little a cup of cup of coffee in, in, in the big leagues but spent majority of their time in the minor leagues and all of a sudden, man, they're, they're at the tail end of their career. Well, guess what? They missed out in 2020. They're done. They can't get a job. And you know, obviously, with the reshuffle of the minor leagues and everything else, it was tough, man. And, and I know a lot of guys are feeling it, um, especially who are in that role, who are really just trying to get that last little taste of the big leagues. Well, and, and, and I think about, you know, like young players, like the young hotshot players, the Mariners got a bunch of them. But as you said, the alternate site's not real games. It's not a real season. No. And just talk about how that kind of sets the Mariners back a year. Yeah, it really does. I mean, you know, put it this way, like, and, and talking to the way it was set up, like, for example, I don't know how the A's did it, but for the, for the Mariners, there was a situation where all the pitchers, sometimes I'd start with 1-1 one, one count. Sometimes I would say, okay, we're going to roll this inning. Sometimes, like, hey, we're just working on a changeup. They're not real at-bats. If you're facing that as a hitter, if you're Jared Kelnick, for example, who is a big-time prospect, and you're spending 2020 
in that kind of envir- environment, it is the same. And say what you want about you know triple A or double A the level. When you're on a bus, when you're on a on a, a connecting Southwest flight, off to some city, and you're tired, or, or you, you, you're dealing with an injury, or, or you're, you're facing some you know superstar prospect on another team who hates your guts, or whatever it may be, all these things build that character. So you're absolutely right. I think the Mariners are really set back. The kid who's pitching tonight for the Mariners, Logan Gilbert, big time prospect, really good stuff, everything else. But you think about it, he hasn't had those real reps since 2019. You know, and and also too, not to mention, I know we're in the month of May, but the month of April, they weren't playing minor league baseball. They're down in, you know, essentially extended spring. They're in Arizona, which again, it just puts them back even more. So I, I just think there's a lot of factors to this. Um, and, you know, that, that body clock doesn't slow down. They, these guys lose a year of age, um, you know, when, you, when you're in the grand scheme of things. And uh, it, it's a tough low and something that, that uh, makes a massive impact once they get to the big league. All right, so down here I've been bugging people about pitch count. I've bugged our GM. I've bugged <laughs> our pitching coach. I'm like, where is the science that says once a guy gets to 100 pitches – we got to start freaking out. And our, right. G, our GM, Dave Force said, there is no science. So I'm like, where did, where, where did we get 100? Why is it 100? Why is it not 110, 115, 90, 95? Where did we get to this point that you get to 100 pitches and, oh, my God, get the bullpen up and we got to get this guy out of the game? <laughs> well, you know, it's, once 99 takes over, it's 100, something happens psychologically, I feel like. I agree with you. I really do. Look, Tony La Russa, you know, with the White Sox, for example, has talked about this. He said, look, I, I can monitor my guys. And if they're in low-stress situations and they're feeling their way through a game with ease, they can go 110, 115 pitches, no problem whatsoever. But then, you know what? If there's a situation with some high-stress innings, I might take them out and the game, you know, sort of predicts what uh, – sorry, excuse me. The game sort of dictates what I'm going to do. I might take them out at 85, 90 pitches. But the whole notion of 100 pitches, here's another one for you, the, the, the six-man rotation. Now, the Seattle Mariners are, are, are taking on the six-man rotation to give an extra day of rest. Part of this was James Paxton coming back from some injuries. Another part of this was a couple of young pitchers their first time in six months. I understand it, but I'll give you a, just to give you an example happened recently, Justin Dunn, who was pitching so well against a tough, tough offense in the San Diego Padres before the Mariners got to the Oakland A's. He goes through five and he's got 84 pitches. And the big thing was he was pitching on four days rest. So all of a sudden, have to take him out of the game. I mean, this, this kid was cruising, absolutely cruising. And you can take you know, two, two sides of the coin here. Number one, yes, I understand you want to protect the kid and make sure he doesn't, he's not tired, he can last six months. I totally understand that. But on the flip side, you get a young pitcher and they have to battle through that last 20% of that pitch count in some of the most high leverage situations in the meet of that, uh, that batting lineup, and you want to develop these guys for the future once you get to the playoffs, all that has so much stock in it when it comes to building players and for them to, to, to get to that kind of superstar level. So I, I think there's, there's a lot of merit in the fact that guys when they go a little deeper in the games, push just a little harder, confidence goes up if they can get through it, you know, their, their stamina can go up. I agree with you, but there is two sides of the coin, absolutely. But, again, 100, I've got no idea where that came from. And, and that makes me think what you're talking about uh, makes me think of Shohei Otani. And I'm like, this guy is a super right. talent. We've never seen anything like it. But they've built their rotation 
around a guy that's only going once every six days, and you're lucky if he goes five innings. It's like, I, right. I, I what's the value in that? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's interesting. And look, Shai, he obviously is a special talent. You said it, and obviously, yeah, he's got a hit as well. So I get, there is a, some some fatigue that goes on there. But when you start, you know, mustering up a plan around one guy when you've got 26 men on a roster, when you've got a bullpen full of guys, that you have to make adjustments. And all the other starting pitchers have to make adjustments also. Like, for example, you're pitching the day after Shohei, and you have to protect that asset, and he only goes three and two-thirds, and the bullpen has to suck it up, and you're pitching that very next day. Well, you know you have to go deep in the game. You know that you're going to have to pitch through you know, some, some, some crap if you're struggling. That's going to change the dynamic. And on, on top of that, too, some guys – I get it. You get that extra day of rest. 100%. I totally understand it. But you talk to some guys who are so used to pitching with four days rest and they get in that rhythm. They've been doing that for five, six years. Man, it's awfully tough. It's, uh, five days in between can feel like a lifetime in between starts. So it just does change a lot of the dynamic. And again, the Angels, they're in our division. I still question, I've scratched my head. They've made some big moves offensively, but on the pitching side, they're just never going to get to where they want to get to because the pitching is always seems always seems to lack in these last couple of years. So I you know as a former pitcher, you know I'm wondering and you know like with like Jacob DeGrom and we get when he gets taken out early and people go, "Oh, he didn't get the win because they took him out after 6." At some point, are we going to need pitchers to step up and and basically go Bob Gibson on people and go, "Hey <laughs> Skip, you're not taking me out." I mean, do pitchers have to start fighting to say, "Listen, this is my game. I'll come. I'll let you know when I'm ready to come out." It just seems like too many of these guys are so cool with the manager coming out and taking the ball from them in the fifth inning with like 84 pitches. At what point do you fight for 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 what you're doing? Yeah, it's a, and I think that that goes into different generations of players. I think when you and especially even the Oakland days, the Seattle Mariners, when you've got a young squad, these guys are so adapted to analytics and they're so adapted to uh, having uh, resources around them, having opinions around them. You talk about some of those, you know, the, the back in the day, I'm trying to think of guys who, like a Clayton Kershaw or a Justin Verlander who are playing right now that are like, no, 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 I'm going, I'm going eight. I'm going 125 yeah. pitches. All right, I'm going to go nine innings. I think that generation of players, the generation of players now, they'll throw a pitch in the bullpen, turn around and look at an iPad to see what the ball did. It's just, you know I mean, it's just completely different. So I think when, when, you, when the generation changes like that, the, hey, look, this iPad or this, this number or whatever says, um, this is a good idea for you to come out of the game or this is why we're doing it or something has to be completely justified and you lose some of that feel for it. These, the, the, and not all of them, don't get me wrong, not all of them, but there's a lot of them that you know, trust that, information they understand it so much that they say okay that makes sense and there's a good balance to that i guess but at the same time look, there is nothing better when and, and when it's all set when the oakland days are playing in the playoffs and you have one of you guys you know frankie montas last night pitching and he's dominated regardless of what he's done before and he's only he feels really good about that third fourth and i think the oakland days are how how much they're going to do this they say oh no hey look this matchup looks better and he walks up the end of the dugout and says hey now bob i've got this I guarantee you, Bob Melvin's like, all right, yeah, let's let's do it. You know, when, when you're in the middle of October, I think there's there's so much value in that, and hopefully that still exists, especially when the games really really count. 
Let's end on this. Take me back to 2004. What was it like pitching the Olympics for Australia? That just had to be an experience of a lifetime. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, like at that point in my career, I didn't know how far I would take baseball. I didn't know if I'd play in the major league. I mean, this is 2004, and I made my debut in 2007. I was 20 years old. And here I am. I'm on a team with Graham Lloyd, who won a World Series ring with the New York Yankees. I'm with Dave Nilsson. You know, he was an all-star, the first ever Australian all-star. I'm with all these other guys that I really looked up to. And I'm one of the youngest players. Next thing you know, we're actually playing quite well. We beat Japan one nothing. Daisuke Matsuzak is pitching against us. And we somehow beat them one nothing. Just shocked the world. I mean, the whole of Japan were in mourning after that game. Like, how did we just lose to Australia? And there we are playing in the gold medal game somehow. And I got a chance to pitch in that gold medal game. i never forget it. And it was just, it was surreal because... Here I am. I'm on a. I'm on a, a, a. There's no better feeling. Obviously, represent your country, and there's no better feeling being on a team. And I've spoke to some of your Aussie buddies, Liam Hendricks, Grant Balfour, with those Oakland A's teams. When you are completely in tune with the rest of your teammates, and that's what it was for the for the Olympics, and, and that's why we had success. Everyone got along. Everyone was backing each other. There wasn't. There was the team chemistry through the roof. And I'll never forget it. And, and walking away from that, all of a sudden, baseball, which is not a big deal in Australia whatsoever. People can care less. But I tell you what, you go to the Olympics and you do well. Oh, you're an Olympian? Wow, look at you. You know what I mean? It, 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 has, it holds more stock than, um, than playing in the big leagues. Back in Australia, it was nuts. And it was, it was, it was a nice, it was a good, good time, that's for sure, in 2004. Where, where is your silver medal right now? <laughs> I, I'm embarrassed to say this, man. I'm not big on putting stuff up on walls. It is sitting in a top drawer in a room at my mum's place on the Gold Coast in Australia. I'm sad to say. Really? I need to put that thing up. You <laughs> want awesome, a silver but... medal, for God's sakes. <laughs> I know. I'm just too scared to, like, commit to, like, displaying it somewhere. I'm like, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, I need to get that thing, you know, and, and, and put it up proudly. That's for sure. No doubt about it. Hey, thank you so much for the time. We always love having you on. Be safe, be well, and let's talk later on during the season. Yeah, always fun, man, anytime. He's good. I like having him on. Yeah, I mean, I remember when we had him on last year during the, uh, during the pandemic-shortened season, and I remember he told us he wanted to do a podcast with uh, – he was like, hey, I'll, I'll let you plan it out. He, he was texting me. He's like, I want to do something with Liam and Grant Balfour, and I'm like – you want me to get Travis Blackley and all the other guys from Australia that ever pitched in the major leagues too? We want to get Burt Blylevin on. I'm sure he'll he'll be he'll be happy to do it with you guys too. Yeah, that, that, it, I mean, if you had Burt, now we're talking. How how is my guy Liam? When are we going to see Liam? Uh, that's a good question. When do we play the White Sox? I think Liam gave up the lead the other night though. Uh, Tony Tony gets the Yankees. Is Tony all over him? Uh, no. Although there was a quote. Um, I don't know if I screenshotted the quote because we got about a minute left. Uh, I want to say Tony said I don't think I, I don't think I saved the quote. Yeah, I didn't save the quote from Tony, but he was talking about how good uh, Andrew Vaughn is and just going on and on about how he competes, but he never said anything like that about your mean Mercedes. So, oh, Ken Korax here as we end the show. Oh, Wally Pipps here, huh? <laughs> Lou uh, Gehrig was in last night and. Uh... How you doing, Ken Korak? I'm done. It's all over. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's going younger, Ken. It was a good run. By the way, did you uh, did you go back and watch Phil? Uh, I watched some of it, yeah. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. I mean, I think for all of us who are golfers, 
to to watch a guy who's 50 years old and win on that golf course, which is literally one of the toughest golf courses we've ever seen for a major championship, one of the longest, and the wind and everything. Can we can we give him a microphone? We have to go. Well, when are you going to come on? All right, we'll talk on the post-game show. The great Ken Korak has entered the booth, the voice of your Oakland Athletics. What are we playing? Uh, we're going to play David Forrest. The general manager show. Yes, general manager show. All right, I'll be back in like, what, 15 minutes? 15 minutes, yeah. Right here on A's Cast. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.